Good morning, everyone. I am feeling a lot better than I was last Sunday, and certainly a lot better than I was midweek. God is good and faithful, and I'm mostly recovered from the sinus flu. Uh, my son has it now, and he's at home. Serena's looking after him. Um, so if you want to pull out your notes and follow along, we're going to be discussing this morning and, and thinking through the relationship of the rule of love, or another way to say that is the role of love and authority in the church of Christ. Or is there a place for authority? Can, can that fit alongside love? That's what we're going to look at. And we're going to look first at the authority corrupted in a sinful world. Authority corrupted in a sinful world. You don't have to look far, you don't have to look hard to see evidence of the corruption, the abuse of authority in the world around us. Whether it's political authority, as, as recent protests in Egypt have revealed, or whether it's employers abusing and taking advantage of their employees, or whether it's even in the church of, of Jesus Christ, where you learn regularly, weekly, it seems, of, of pastors who have abused the trust and authority of their congregation, running off the people in the church embezzling funds from the church. And we have a long history of seeing the abuses of authority in the world around us. Uh, the, the, the war in Vietnam, if it taught us anything, taught us that we were a little too trusting of our government. And so as a result, our posture in this world tends to be one of distrust, slight resistance to authority. I mean, we, we live in a country that was founded on a revolt against an unjust authority. And in every area of our life, we see the abuse. What is more ugly than the abuse of authority in the home, an abusive husband, an abusive father? What, what, what is a more despicable thing than to see that? And so our culture, especially as it shifts into more and more into not even being sure that they're absolutes, not even being sure that truth is, is a real category, becomes even increasingly hostile or suspicious to the notion of authority. Who gives us the right to define what marriage is? Who gives us the right to define what's right and wrong? See, no one minds if these are my beliefs for me. It's when we try to speak outside of ourselves to others that all of a sudden people go, wait, wait, whoa, by what right? With what authority do you get to tell others that? And so this notion of authority, it's, it's easy to see its corruption around us. And there's good news. As much as we don't like corrupt authority, as much as it bothers us, as much as if you've experienced the abuse of authority, God hates corrupt authority even more. Open, open your Bibles to Ezekiel 22. God hates corrupt authority. It, it offends him. And so there's something right, there's something true about our repulsion of unjust, ungodly rule. In Ezekiel 22, God tells his prophet exactly why it is that he is going to take his chosen people into exile. Why he will have the city of Jerusalem raised. And in verses 23 to 31 we read, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to her, 
You are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the days of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I would not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. You see corruption at every level, whether it's the prince, the, the political figure, whether it's the priest, or even just the common folk extorting, bribing, corruption of authority at every level, and God is disgusted by it. And so as we see it and we look around us, there's something right about that. There's something good about our revulsion to, to corrupt rule. But our current state, and especially as we're focusing in this series on the church, um, a lot in the church have sort of swung the pendulum the other way. And if you think about it, if, if Christians are going to show up in the media, in movies, they'll be one of two types. They'll be the sort of the weak um, dreamer type or the hypocritical, self-righteous, judgmental, sort of the puritanical Salem witch trials type of Christian. That's the way the world likes to look at us. And as a result of that, we don't want to be that. The pendulum sort of swings the other way. And as our culture more and more really doesn't like the idea of authority, really doesn't like the idea of structure, um, churches, I think oftentimes meaning well, accommodate that. Especially if this works better at even bigger churches where it sort of becomes a... Um, buffet table approach, which is just come, you're welcome, you can sit on the sidelines if you like. You don't have to get involved if you don't want to. If you do want to get involved, we have programs, something for everyone. But, but no, no, feel no need to commit. No pressure. Just, we're just here for you. We just want to encourage your faith. We just want to be a blessing. And especially in bigger churches, it really becomes easy to come and go as you please to get involved here, take a month off over here, where you can shop around. You can go to this church's Bible study and this church's service and this church's other thing over here. I mean, it really is well-suited for consumerism. It's well-suited for what we want, which is the most benefit, the most service with the least possible commitment. And, and so there is many who want to pit love and community on the one hand, against authority and structure on the other. They want to pit love and community against 
authority and structure on the other hand. And so you'll hear things like what we need is, is more authentic relationships, more love, more community. We, we need less structure. We need less authority. We need less rules. I'm, I'm all for love and community and, and relationships. But as Christians, we should be a little suspicious of that polarization as if they're incompatible concepts that you either have love and relationship or you have authority and structure. And, and the reason we should be a little suspicious of that is our God, if he is anything, is loving and an authority, right? In fact, if you stop to think about the person of our triune God, our God, unlike any other formulation or understanding of God, exists eternally as three persons in loving community. Long before God created the earth, God was loving God. The Father was loving the Son. The Son was loving the Father. The Spirit was loving the Father and the Son. There was community and there was love and there was relationship and yet when Jesus comes to earth he makes it clear he does nothing on his own authority but only what the Father gives him to do. You see, from Jesus' perspective there is no conflict between his love for his Father and his Father's love for him and his commitment to obey the Father his commitment to do the things that please the Father. You see, authority modeled in our triune God shows us that there doesn't have to be any necessary conflict between love and community and relationship and authority and structure. Because they exist perfectly in our triune God. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I want to learn a little bit more about how does godly authority work? And how does it work with love? How can it be loved? Triune God, this God who is three and yet one, in relationship and yet structured, this God amazingly, as an act of free love, decides to create. And in Genesis 1, 26, we'll get an insight into how it is that he created. Genesis chapter 1. You can just keep your Bibles open here. We're going to look at some passages in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. In verse 26 through the end of the chapter, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. And, and you'll notice this switch from singular back to plural, back to singular. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and over the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God creates man in his image, and God gives man authority. This is all before the fall. This is all before sin. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So this loving, sovereign God creates man in his image and 
creating man, he gives man authority. It's also interesting to consider how it is that God makes man in his image. Turn over to Genesis 2 for a sort of zoomed-in look at this. We model God, the Trinitarian God, in remarkable ways. <coughs> Genesis 2, we'll look at verses 15 to 24. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heaven, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the triune God, the God who is three and yet one, the God who eternally exists in relationship, yet with structure and authority, creates man in his own image, and when he does, he creates a married couple. And it's interesting to consider that even here we have this language, the two shall become one. Our God, who is three in one, creates two who act as one, who are in a loving relationship, and yet within that loving relationship of marriage, there is structure. There is, there is equality of essence and being. My wife and I are both equally image bearers of God. And yet the roles that God has for us are different and there is structure. And so the creation of a married couple models the Trinity in, in, in many ways. And God gives the man and the woman authority. And what we see from all of this is that godly authority, rightly understood, creates and cultivates life. Godly authority creates and cultivates life life. It doesn't destroy it. See, we, we are tempted to look around us at the world, and all we see is authority taking life, crushing life, holding people down. But rightly understood, godly authority creates. It authors life. Our God, who is an authority and who is loving, creates man, and then he gives man the authority. And what is the authority that man has? To tend the garden, to subdue the earth, to fill it with people, for the husband to shepherd and care for his wife. See, he gives man the authority to author and create life and to tend to and cultivate life. And rightly understood, that is God's purpose for authority. I mean, think of Psalm 1. You don't need to turn there, but blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. As this godly man submits to God's law, it doesn't restrain him. It doesn't hold him down. It cultivates him so that he is fruitful. 
He's vigorous and full of spiritual life. In a dry season, he still bears much fruit as he submits to God's authority and does not resist it. The wicked, Psalm 1 goes on to say, like the chaff, the dry bits that the wind blows away. See, God's authority, godly authority, creates life, sustains life, doesn't take life. And so, as much as we resist authority because we see corruptions of it, we need to also turn to Genesis 3 and realize that there's another side to this story as well. Namely, that the fall was our rejection and replacing of God's authority with our own. We'll just look at Genesis 3, the first six verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her. He ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, all the problems of this world started with a conversation a conversation about can we trust God's motives can we trust God's authority see the person under authority in one sense is always vulnerable to misuse of that authority and so the serpent comes along and says God may say that he has your best interest in heart and in mind but really he's holding you down really he is keeping good things from you he's jealous that you'll be like him and if you eat of this fruit if you come out from under his authority you will come up alongside of God be like God you won't be under his rule anymore and that thought is very appealing to us and really at the heart of sin of all sin is rejection of God's authority that's why in 1 John, John can say sin is lawlessness. At any point where we disregard God's law, what we're saying is, he, you're not the boss of me. We, we learned a few weeks ago that the desire for autonomy, that word autonomy comes from two Greek words which means self-rule, self-law. We want to be a law unto ourselves. And that's in dealing with perfect authority. And my point here is that we need to become a little suspicious, not just of those in authority, but those under authority, because if we have a well-formed understanding of sin, we'll recognize that not only do we dislike authority because it can be misused, but we dislike authority because we're sinners. I mean, who here really actually enjoys authority? Who here gets pulled over by a police officer for speeding and is thankful for God's restraining sin? Which child just rejoices in submitting to their parents. Oh, no, no. From birth, we all have a bent to do what we want because we want to. And we need things like government and prisons and laws because without those things, we do what we want. 
We don't like authority. And so we have a healthy suspicion for those at the top because we've seen those at the top, those in authority misuse it, but we also need to have a healthy suspicion of our desire to be free of authority. We can tell ourselves it's just the abuses we've seen, but as Christians, we should understand that really we just don't like authority. We're, we're kind of like um, a captain of a ship. This is a story I heard. Um, captain of the ship looked into the dark night and saw faint lights in the distance. So here's, here's this captain of his, of his ship, and he's out in the ocean, and in the distance at night he sees far lights away, and he immediately gets on the horn and sends a message, alter your course 10 degrees south, to which he promptly receives a message in return, alter your course 10 degrees north. Well, the captain is angered. His command has been ignored, so he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Soon another message came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am Seaman Third Class Jones. Immediately, the captain sent a third message, knowing the fear it would evoke. For the final time, alter your course 10 degrees. I am a battleship. Then came the reply, alter your course 10 degrees. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> and, and we can sympathize with that because we don't like submitting. And if anything, we want people to submit to us. We want our way done on earth. We want people to, to yield to our desires. And that shows up in the church. I want a church that's built around me. I want me church. I want me, church. I want all of you to serve me, my needs, my desires, my wants. I want a church that just gives, gives, and gives and asks nothing in return. I want zero commitment, but maximum benefit. And that just comes out of my sinful heart that hates authority, that hates rule, wants autonomy. That, that, that's right where that comes from and no other place. We need to suspect those in authority, but we also need to suspect those under it. Peter, Jonathan Lehman, speaking of, of Genesis 3 in the fall, says the following. People refuse to submit to authority only partly because they fear injustice and being harmed. That was what Satan used with Adam and Eve, saying, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. The serpent said, suggesting that God was trying to cheat them out of something that was rightly theirs. Really, it was their lust for self-rule that induced Adam and Eve to believe the lie. Their experience is universal. You'll be harmed if you submit, Satan tells us, to which we gladly respond. Not only that, but I won't be able to take advantage of my rights. The Apostle Paul describes this interchange in Ephesians 2, 1-3, suggesting that it is nothing more than a conspiracy. So, as Christians, we, we're, we're in a tough spot. We see around us misrule in the church, in the world, in government, in family. And yet, the answer can't be as simple as jettison authority. Everyone do what's right in the sight of his own eyes. So how do we move forward? How do we proceed? Well, our resurrected Lord provides a way forward. And we see authority redeemed by a risen Lord. Authority redeemed by a risen Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ 
rightly as God has all authority but he didn't grasp onto it he didn't cling to it he, he put it aside and emptied himself taking on human form and he comes and he lives a, a life being mistreated being abused submitting to every form of human government the Jews want him to speak against Rome they want him to lead a revolution he won't do it he won't do it if my kingdom of, were of this world, my people would be fighting, he says. And then he's killed. He shows us what submission looks like, what obedience looks like. And as God vindicates him and raises him, he gives him all authority and all power. And so if you open your Bibles to Matthew 28, we will see a vision of our risen and exalted Christ in what is commonly known as the Great Commission and our risen Lord our great God says in, in Matthew 28 16 to 20 now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them and when they saw him they worshipped him but some doubted and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, our risen Lord, you could argue, already had all authority. But by virtue of his sinless life, his perfect obedience to the Father's will, Philippians tells us God therefore has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow whether in earth above the earth on the earth or under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Jesus appearing to his disciples says I have received all authority Jesus Christ has received all authority and if you became a Christian, this is, this is one of those things you had to recognize to become a Christian. We were living our lives however we saw fit, doing whatever we wanted. And we came to a point of faith and repentance where we said, Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Master. Jesus is God. If you're a Christian here, you, you recognize his redeemed authority. And Jesus is redeeming and renewing all things creation groans and our Lord as the firstborn from the dead, the prototype of the resurrection will not only raise our bodies but he will renew creation and Colossians 1 says he will restore and reconcile all things through his death on the cross including fallen human authority he will bring a kingdom in the future of perfect earthly rule but for now with all of this authority he delegates his church to act in his stead. And the church then is given this authority, not an authority we innately have, but authority that Jesus says he has, that he gives to us. It's to do two things. The first, to proclaim the gospel. Jesus delegated this authority to the church to proclaim the gospel to the world. And we understand that. When we go out and we speak truth to the world, the world generally doesn't like it. They have no problem when we speak of God's love and Jesus' death and all of that. But it's when we round the corner 
and say things like, only through Jesus can you be saved. When we round that corner and say, the lifestyle you're living is sinful. And then the world gets indignant and, and wants to know, by what right would we dare tell somebody else their beliefs are wrong? And what they're asking is an authority question. By what authority can I look at my neighbor across the street and say, your faith in, in Islam is, is not. It's false. By what right? By what authority? It's a fair question. And the, and the resurrected Lord says, by his authority. It's not that you or I have any intrinsic authority to say such things, but the resurrected Lord has all authority, and based on that authority, he tells us, therefore, make disciples by going and preaching and baptizing, which speaks of con conversion. And notice again, this authority is life-giving. It creates life. As we go with Jesus' authority and preach the gospel, people are born again, and spiritual life is created. And we get that. But I want you to notice the second thing tied up in the Great Commission here. Not only are we authorized to speak to the world, to expose darkness, to call things what they are, to announce the gospel. But Jesus didn't say, go out, preach the gospel, and once they get converted, I'll take it from there. He also commands them in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see, point two, Jesus delegates his authority to the church to train up those who believe. And this really is the foundation, foundational concept of the church's authority over the church. Christ has authorized, given us the responsibility not only to announce his gospel to the world, but when people believe, to train up their faith. And we live in a culture that's so saturated with this notion of it's just me and Jesus just me and the Lord, personal relationship with Jesus, which is true, that we might get the notion that my growth and my discipleship is really just between me and the Lord. And if we're honest, a lot of us in the church and around act that way. My discipleship's my business, and if I want to do it over here, I'll do it over here, and if I want to do it over here, I'll do it over here, and if I want to do it with these people, I'll do it with these people. And if I want to take some time time off and thank you very much and yet look at that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you See, the church is given the responsibility of training up again this life nurturing life affirming authority and if you stop to think about it, this is, this is really the only way we can make sense of biblical illustrations of the church as a body, as a family, the household of God. Yes, a family is a set of loving relationships, but it's a set of a certain type of loving relationships. You can imagine the chaos that would happen in the family where the children undertook the task of training the parents. And we've seen the carnage that ensues when fathers and husbands abandon their post. No, a family only works when there are certain relationships embraced by certain people. The husband's relationship to the wife is not the same as the wife's to the husband, is not the same as the brother to the sister, is not the same as the child to the parent. 
Oh, a family is a group of loving relationships and community, but it is a very certain set of relationships. The same goes with a body, the body metaphor. There's a set of relationships with all of our parts, but if they're not working together in concert and in harmony and held together with cohesion, it's a mess. It's a mess. And this is what the local church is. It's not a buffet cart. It's a body. It's a family. I was, I was looking online, and I came across a report of Jeff Kepner, who was the first ever recipient of a double hand transplant surgery in the United States. The surgery was performed at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center on Monday, May 4th, 2009. Kepner lost both hands and feet in 1999 from a strep infection. After getting permission from the donor's family, the surgeons removed the donor's hands, extending midway to the elbows. A team of surgeons attached arteries and veins and repaired tendons and nerves and set the bones for both hands. The surgery involved 27 bones, 28 muscles, three major nerves, two major arteries, multiple tendons, veins, and soft tissue. Doctors started the operation at 7 p.m. Tuesday and finished 17 and a half hours later on Wednesday afternoon. You see, it's a big deal to become joined to a body. If the metaphor means anything, it means that. It's a big deal to be part of a family. And in our culture, where families dissolve, it at least still takes some form of legal formality to break a family up for a husband to leave, for a wife to leave. And yet we'll talk about the church as a family, as a body, and, and really want to retain ultimate privilege and right for ourselves because we fear being taken advantage of. We fear being mistreated. We fear submitting ourselves to Christ's church. And if we rightly understand the resurrected Lord's commission and authority, he gives it so that we can be a body, so that we can be responsible for each other. As the Apostle Paul says, be members of each other. So let's turn to our last passage and look at authority embraced within Christ's church. Turn with me to Hebrews 13, 17. Now Hebrews 13, 17, I'll say right up front, is, is probably not a verse you've heard a sermon on before. There's a lot tied up in it. A lot of responsibility to it. The writer of Hebrews says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. I looked through all the major translations. There's really not much deviance here. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch of your souls. And notice that connection again. Here's this authority seen in the church, and yet it's clear that authority is a soul-shepherding, a soul-tending, watching authority. We're back to authority's purpose being the, the creation and the sustaining of life. Jesus wants people looking over our souls, shepherding out for our souls. You, you want that. I'm, I'm so thankful. I'm not an elder, but I, I go to the elder meetings. I get to sit in the elder meetings. And these men, Pastor Gary and your elders, 
They, they take this responsibility seriously. As much as we may not like the first half of this verse, it's the second half of this verse that keeps me up at nights. I'm going to give an account. The resurrected Lord is going to expect me to give some answers. But the people put in my charge. And, and from what I've seen at the elder meetings, the elders get this. They take this seriously. You want a church where the leadership takes this responsibility seriously. But if you want that, you also want a church where the people in the church take the first half of this verse seriously as well. Now, to soften it up a hair, the word translated obey, patho, really has the notion of be persuaded, be won over by. So it's, it's not a hard obey and hear your dictators as much as it is hear your leaders, hear your shepherds. They shouldn't have a hard time convincing you of things. You should be inclined to be persuaded by them. Your stance shouldn't be sort of the Heisman Trophy. You know, that shouldn't be our stance, but rather our stance should be default. Hey, these are the godly men that God has given this church, and, and I sh why shouldn't I just assume that they are prayerfully meaning the best for me? And submit is the notion of placing ourselves under. Again, not, not very intuitive things that we like doing, but could the passage be clearer? And so I just want to have us ask one question of ourselves. And that is, am I involved in a church or am I united to a church? Am I involved in a church or am I united to a church? And here's, here's what I mean. A person can be very involved in a church and not in any way come under the authority of the church. They can serve in a wana, they can, they can teach, set out coffee, they can do all sorts of things, and yet in their head and in their mind, they are that free agent. They are that autonomous individual. They're doing it because it pleases them to do it, and if they stop wanting to do it, they'll stop doing it. They're self-directed. Yes, they're serving. Yes, they're involved. Yes, they're building relationships but they're not really in any way keeping a verse like Hebrews 13, 17 in mind, and they're not really in any way leaning into the leadership. So you can be involved in a church, but are we rather united to a church? Are we members of that church? Are we grafted in? Are we a family with each other? Where we recognize responsibilities for each other, where we are members of each other. That, that's what this whole sermon is getting to us. What does it mean to join with Unite with a local church. And if it means anything, it means the end of autonomy. It means that we are members of each other, that we have a responsibility for each other, and we should be submitting to each other in love. Instead of expecting you all to fit around my schedule, my wants and my desires, I should be laying down my life, crucifying my desires, and esteeming you all as more important than myself. And, and that can show up in a number of ways. And I just want to get specific here. Whenever you get specific, you run the risk of, of stepping on toes. So I, I apologize in advance. I'm just trying to give some real concrete examples here. So we can identify ourselves. And this might be a new notion for some of you. So I, I, I get that. So I just want you to think through this as you're asking that question. Am I, if Martinsdale Community Church, if you would say this is your home church, this is your body, this is your spiritual family, I want you to ask yourself, would you say that it characterizes you that you are involved or united to 
Martinsdale. Two, two areas. We could have 20, but we'll just look at two. First, leaving a church. So here's my question. How free would you feel if you were offended by a message or by somebody or if you found a church you liked better or was closer or had better programs or youth ministry or music or whatever, how free would you feel to make the decision to leave completely on your own? How free would you feel? That, that to my mind, would be a good indicator of how united you feel. Well, I'm not saying you need to get the pastor's permission, but if we're a family, if we're a body, decisions like this, I'd hope, should involve some sort of discussion, especially if you're thinking of leaving because of offense. We should love each other enough to go talk to the people that offend us. If you hear a message you don't like, go talk to the pastor about it. After all, we are all held accountable to this book. If Pastor Gary, the elders, if I say something that is not in accord with God's word, you better come and tell us. You don't love anybody. You don't serve anybody, except yourself, when you just get up and leave without letting anyone know. So that's the first question. How free do you feel to leave? And, and we see that happen, and nothing makes me more discouraged when a family who's involved here just leaves. And maybe they send an email out, let people know, but it becomes clear in that moment that as involved as they were, as serving, as giving as they were, they viewed this church as, as a resource. Pastor Gary as a, as a coach, as an instructor, but not a body that there was a commitment and not a church that had an authority that we are accountable to. So that's my first question. How free... Would you feel if you were offended, if you didn't like something, or if you found a better church, closer church, church with a later service, church that didn't go so long, how free would you feel to leave? Right? Because churches that, most church growth is people swapping from one church to another. And, and I'll be the first person to admit that leadership fails, can fail in this area too. You're, you're blessed to have a senior pastor previous to Pastor Gary, who was here for 30 plus years, but I think the average stay at a church for a pastor is about three to five years. So it's not as though the leadership in the country is doing a great job of modeling this either. Um, that, that's my first question. My second question is, do we trust and defer to my leaders? Do I trust and defer to my leaders and their exhortations? And let's get really practical here. I'll, I'll hesitate to bring this up, um, and I hope you take the spirit that's brought up in, but let's take something like ABF involvement, small group involvement. You know, I, I've heard in my three and a half years here, Pastor Gary, the elders speak and make it clear that they really want to encourage each and every one of you, if you're able, to get involved in an ABF, get involved in a small group. And that's not law. And you're not sinning if you don't do it. But here's my question. How free do you feel to just shrug that off? How free do you feel to? Well, that's nice. Because make no mistake, the Pastor Gary and the elders have not created and perpetuated the small group cycle so that here's a buffet table. And if, if you're interested and if a topic comes up that you like and, you know, if you got the time, well, we thought it'd be nice for you to do this if you wanted to. And if not, that's okay. No, that's not, that's not what their stance is. Rather, they're saying, hey, if, if you trust us if you look to us for leadership, if we're going to give an account for your soul, 
we really think this is important. We really think this is one of the primary places that relationships, discipleship, accountability, and encouragement take place. And even if you don't see the wisdom and the beauty in this, we would just encourage you to be persuaded by us, to defer to us, to give it a try. I know that there are plenty of good reasons not to go to an ABF. And no one's going to be keeping a score afterwards. I promise you. It, this is falling in one of those balancing acts where it's not mandatory, but it's not optional. Not mandatory, but not optional. What I mean is, it's not mandatory as if the, your leaders are getting up and saying, okay, here's the rules, do it. Well, there's no Bible verse that commands it, and so if we tried to toe that line, we would be guilty of legalism. And you'd be right in saying, oh, that's no good. But on the other hand, it's not optional. It's not the buffet cart. Rather, ABFs and small groups are really the first line of defense, the, the most immediate and practical tool that your leaders have come up with prayerfully for the shepherding of your souls, for the promotion of body fellowship. And if this is your fellowship, and if this is your church, and if these are your leaders, that should matter to you. Unless, of course, you're just involved and not committed and united to the church. Now, just think about that. Think about that. The spirit of what I'm talking about probably could be seen in, in Philemon 1. Um, you don't need to turn there, but Paul's trying to balance this, this issue of not give a command, but not just making a suggestion. And it's, it's difficult to capture, but um, I think Philemon chapter 1, well, there's only one chapter, does a, a, a good job of this. Paul in verse 8 and 9. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what I require. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you, my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. What Paul's saying is he's an apostle, and he has the authority in Christ to dictate commands. He, the guy writes Scripture. And none of, none, of, none of the church leaders here can do this. this. Paul's in a different category, to be sure. But it's that attitude of Paul where he's saying, look, I don't want to use my authority. I don't want to say, obey me. I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you. But, but Paul is definitely not just making a suggestion. Paul is definitely not saying, oh, hey, you know, if, if you think this is a good idea, here you go. And that's the sort of the balancing act that I think your leaders, that the, the elders, Pastor Gary, are trying to do too. They, they don't want to give orders. Really, ideally, it should be our delight to lean into the leadership that God has provided. To lean into it. Hebrews 13, obey our leaders and, and submit to them and as those who watch over our souls will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage. So in closing, I just want to encourage you. If Martinsdale Community Church isn't your church... The risen Lord wants you to find a fellowship where you can live out verses like Hebrews 13, 17. And there are others like it, but we'll just look at this one. And if this is your church, I'd encourage you to, to instead of resisting this knee-jerk reaction that we have to authority, to see the beautiful, life-giving, life-affirming purpose of godly authority. And instead of stiffening our backs, leaning into it, becoming really a member of this family, of this body, which gives so much benefit and so much responsibility to each other, 
That's what it means to unite with the local church. That's what it means to say, this is my church. You are my family. These elders are my leaders. I can't say that about the church down the street. They're part of Christ's church. They're part of Christ's body. They're not part of my church. They're not my leaders. They're not my family. I'll get to know them very well in eternity. But right now, it's you guys who are my family. It's you guys who are my part of the body that I'm part of. And so I have a special relationship and a special commitment and a special responsibility to each and every one of you. And if this is your body, you share that with me. And it's the end of self-rule. It's the end of autonomy. And it's the end of coming and going as I please. But it's the beginning of being part of Christ's new creation. It's the beginning of being Christ's church on earth, modeling the loving yet authority of God as we model our lives after the risen Lord's rule. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. Lord, I just pray that you would give us hearts, Lord, that, that, that do not resist, but rather are thankful for the, the leaderships that you've placed in our lives, Lord. I'm so thankful for the elders here and their care over this body. Lord, I pray that you'd guard them from ever abusing or misusing their authority. But Lord, at the same time, I would pray that you would guard us from just resisting and, 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 and pushing back, but that this body would be a harmonious body, a family that is functional, and that as a result, we would all grow up in maturity, that we would all grow up in the image of your son, and that the world would see your love modeled here. Lord God, until you return, in Jesus' name, amen.